the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 2 this December 29th, 2020. It's a delight to bring back Congressman Andy Biggs, representing Arizona's 5th Congressional District Chairman of the House Freedom uh, Freedom Caucus. Sorry, Andy, welcome back. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I wanted to wish you a Happy New Year as well. Thank you, Seth. I did. I hope your holidays have been going great as well. You betcha. You betcha. Thank you. Although there are these Grinch-like efforts. My gosh, I I don't know if you saw Joe Biden's speech today. He doesn't do press conferences really anymore. He just does little speeches. And he said this, quote, We have to anticipate that the infections over the holidays will produce soaring case counts in January and soaring death tolls into February. My gosh, have you ever heard a president-elect sound so pessimistic about the future? Well, I mean, he's hearkening back to Jimmy Carter days. Yes, yes, yes. As as sad sack as Jimmy Carter was, Joe Biden's got him beat all to pieces on that. I think, Uh, you know, he's, yeah, it's a pretty pretty doom and gloom. He's been touting that. And, And one of the reasons to think about that is he knows that that he wants to move from state and local lockdowns and mandates to federal lockdowns and mandates and federal uh, vaccine vaccine mandates to, as well. So he is setting it up. Uh, it's going to give them greater control if they're able to enact this on a federal level. And and that's we, we have to understand that as an American people. So I guess I've missed this um, lesson in poli sci because I would have guessed that if you're the president, you want to have the economy do well on your watch or by your actions. Is is his idea that we'll go through some 100 days of misery or something, and then he can say, yep, okay, that's what we needed to do. We sw- swallowed the bitter pill. Now we can let up. Is that is, And then the economy will take off again under his watch. Is that the thinking? I Because I don't get it. I don't understand why you would want to deliberately harm your economy, unless they don't care, and it's what you said. It's just about power. Well, I, I, I really do believe it's about power and control. I don't think it will be a 100-day event. I think it will go beyond that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the uh, propaganda coming out of uh, Southern California right now is is unbelievable, and yet uh, eyes on the ground are telling us that uh, official dogma is not to be believed. So, uh, to me, this is a a, a way to, to to do a power play, and um, and scare scare the holy crud out of people. I mean, there there are two two or three animating um, uh, things in politics. One, what could be either love and what loves the weakest. And David Horowitz wrote about this twenty years ago. He said the most animating, most powerful animating force in po- American politics. Is fear, right? Fear, right? And so, and so that's why you see this demonization and uh, of constantly of people's opponents if it's a close race or, or something like that. 
but that's, that's what, what worries me. Is, Fear worries me because it usually yeah. turns into scapegoating certain groups, classes, or p- p- kinds of people. That's how it usually manifests. Into right. It, it, that's no. You're exactly right. It, but it also um, creates uh, desperation in the populace. Mm-hmm. So you generate enough fear, you're going to get desperation. You get desperation. Um, somebody comes in riding uh, ostensibly a white horse, and uh, with the solutions, and um, and the solutions may, may have absolutely nothing to do with fixing the problem, right. if there even is a problem. Right. But what it does is, it, he's going to give solutions that he or she is going to give solutions that will make the people busy and feel like uh, they're doing something. And sometimes it's exactly what you say: it's scapegoating. We see that all over the place in the cancel culture. Today. Remember the old ad campaign? I think it was the New Seekers. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Um, yes. I'd, I'd like to give the world a class on equity in law because this principle of redressability has totally been lost. You can only go to court to get the solution that will actually make the problem you have, you know, will address the problem you have. We seem in politics right. not to do that at all, at all, especially when it comes to this. No, I mean, well, I mean, this gets right into, you know, whether it's the Omni bill yeah. with with these massive uh, funds, which, by the way, that wasn't a clean bill. Um, but what it was clean of is is that there will be no cuts that the president says he wants. What it will be is, is $2,000. Now, the question is, it's going to go to everybody, and it's also going to be retroactive. And it's it's going to um, broaden the pool because it's no longer just defined as uh, as child as a qualifying child. It's it's any kind of dependent whatsoever. Sure. So so the question is, did did that did that fix the problem when you have all these lockdowns? Right. Uh, did, did that fix the economic problem? Uh, and the answer, of course, is no. Um, and and we we know that there's was been fraud all along in these massive programs, because when you start rolling out a trillion dollars here and a trillion dollars there, it's really hard to account for that uh, on a micro level. It's so Exactly right. And I have no idea why we're fixing it to 2019 income. I, that just it makes no sense to me either. But Andy, let me ask you this question, if I can, because I've been doing it with the audience. I've been doing it with friends, all of whom are smarter than me, like you. What? How stands the state of conservatism in America right now? A lot of people think we're a little more divided, a little more splintered. Some people think we're actually maybe perhaps stronger. What, where do you come down on where we as a movement stand right now? Well, we're in a crossroads like everybody else is in the country, I believe. And our crossroads is, is I think this $2,000 thing really kind of gets at it. Uh, President Trump is... Okay, I'm going to give you some names. Rush Limbaugh made it uh, safe and okay to be a conservative mm-hmm. and, and lit a fuse under the conservative mu- movement that had been moribund. And so that's where he was. And then when you get to President Trump, he basically said um, the conservative movement has been hijacked by neocons who don't understand that one of the fundamental aspects of conserving something is to recognize the greatness of what you're trying to conserve, and that's America and the American ideal, American dream. The question is, do we do we become a broader populist-slash-socialist type of, of conservative uh, movement, or do we say, look, um, 
we're going to be conservative. We're going to be social conservatives. We're going to be fiscal conservatives. We're going to be um, free. We're going to be free traders with with certain um, guardrails on to protect our country. We're going to um, adhere to the Trump foreign policy, and all those will be under attack. All those will be under relentless attack. And uh, the the one that that I feel like um, over four years we just haven't really been able to to uh, get a handle on is is the spending issue because nobody wants to address that and and when you started adding the, the COVID money um, we've added ten trillion dollars roughly probably um, in national debt in the last four years. Let me ask you a question about the left for a second then. Because this debate is is roiling around Washington D.C. too, it's the debate over Section 230 of the C, of the Decent Communications Decency Act. You know, if that's lifted, that opens up opportunity for more lawsuits. Of course, you would think the trial lawyers on the left would be supportive of it, but they're not. The left seems to is again. I guess the the principle of control and censorship and ideology will outweigh every other interest. I guess. Well, it, it, does, it, it does. I mean, they, they, look, the left has so, so many ways to attack uh, and, and get money for trial lawyers that, that they don't really need this. Okay. Although this is <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, just, you can be a glutton, okay? They okay. don't want to be a glutton. <laughs> yeah, so when you start looking at... We don't we need a new cause at, of action in America, okay? <laughs> Let's get a bumper sticker. No more causes of action. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, when you when you look at two thirty, though, yeah, um, it's 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 actually a fine piece of legislation if it were being enforced the way it was intended. Right. 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 You don't really need to to make wholesale changes to it. You just need to actually enforce that law. Fair enough. And so and so when you have a Facebook or YouTube, well, I don't. Yeah, YouTube. Yeah, YouTube's engaging. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. All of them. Yeah. When they stop acting like platforms, yeah. or the public square, that, that's what they said. That's right. You know, we need this protection because we're public square. Right. We're just the public square. Yeah, we're not editing. We're not public. Yeah, we're exactly. not editing anything. We're not editorializing. We're not publishing ourselves. Right. But as soon as they start putting on everybody's Twitter, including mine and yours, that says that this claim has been disputed, right. whatever. You know, yeah. Or they, or they totally suppress you. Um, uh, Guess what? You are no longer you're no longer the public square. What you are doing is you are censoring, yep. and a, and a censor is what an editor does exactly right. to a certain extent. Exactly. And so right. exactly. you're a publisher. You should now bear the liability of publishers, yep. and yep. then you don't have to change it because then you can allow the conservative movement, uh, social medias like Parler and mm-hmm. Rumble and yep. those types of things that are trying to develop and grow. Uh, they can grow and be, get the protections because they're not censoring. You bet. You bet. Well, Andy, we get, did a nice little tour here. I'm glad you could uh, stop by. You're doing great work, and I thank you, and again, wish you and your family a very happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year to you and yours too, Seth. Thank Thanks. you. Bless you, sir. 602-508-0960. Let me put in a word for balance of nature, especially this time of year. It is a great product. I take it every single day. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits and vegetables, all the good stuff. And what some of my friends have been telling me lately is it's great first thing in the morning when they've had a rough, hard, long night, a little sleep, or they've depleted a lot of their uh, natural, other natural resources due to, um, well, 
doing the kinds of things you do this kind of year. So um, they say they take it first thing in the morning, and it gets them going. And they have a great deal of balance of nature right now, offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Those preferred orders are great because you are guaranteed wholesale pricing for the life of your uh, subscription with them. And uh, if you want, you can get a free personal health coach if you want. Uh, But great deal. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of the fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-2468-751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. It's important to use discount code BALANCE. Such a great product. As I say, I take it every single day. Speaking of that uh, Section 230 business, uh, the kinds of censorship social media has been engaging in, uh, it's easy to forget how much of it and how effective uh, it was um, in shaping the election narrative, shaping some of the election outcome. It's, It's really amazing to think how much over the course of this year it was. The media had an idea or two, based on an ideology as to what could be um, spread, communicated through social media, and what could not. Now, the funny thing is, all under the guise of the Communications Decency Act, which I know a thing or two about, I did a special project on it some, some years ago, the entire point, really, of the Communications Decency Act, which was passed, I believe, in 1996, the entire point of it was to basically um, stop, if not stop, then hamper um, the transmission of the kinds of worst things you can imagine on the Internet, including everything from child porn to obscenity. It was really geared towards that And there was a lot of resistance to it, as you can imagine, because that's a big industry. That's a multi-billion dollar industry. That's a big industry, that stuff. And there was a lot of resistance to it. And, of course, there was the whole libertarian argument going on at the same time, left libertarian, right libertarian, about who's to say. Who's to say, which I don't buy into, but conversation for a different time. And the media giants that were, you know, opening into the new frontier of electronic media, they were opposed to it because, you know, they didn't want liability and they didn't like the idea of government having definitions of what they could and could not do. So instead, what happened is you got the Communications Decency Act. No one thought too much about this one niggling Section 230. And what the media giants have done with it is have themselves become the censors so that what they were yelling at us about, we who supported it at the time, what they were yelling at us about, the government shouldn't be in the business of censorship, which we as a general principle agree with, with certain exceptions, they have now taken on for themselves as censors, but not Necessarily, in fact, not at all, really, of visual imagery and visual depiction, but the very speech 
the First Amendment was most geared towards protecting, which was is political speech. You cannot read a First Amendment speech case without reading that it was political speech that was supposed to receive the most protection. Now, I know some will say, well, yes, okay, and right now the First Amendment doesn't apply to private media corporations. Okay, fine, we get that, but is that the important point, or is the protection of political speech the important point? When social media can become bigger, when media giants can become bigger than the government and can engage in efforts greater than government censorship. Try it this way. I don't think the government could have suppressed the Hunter Biden story the way CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post successfully did. I don't think they could have. And if they tried, if they tried, there would be an immediate uh, preliminary injunction against doing so. Where do you go to stop it now? You don't. You can't. You can't. And so thank you to Joy Pullman over at The Federalist um, for going through over the course of this year the kinds of things we're talking about when we talk about what Google and Facebook and Twitter tried to keep people from seeing in 2020. And it wasn't obscenity and pornography. It was political speech and scientific argument. Think about that. Think about what communications decency has come to mean. Originally, to protect children from pornography and obscenity, to now protecting all of America from conservatism. Or just an honest story about a Democrat. Think about that. That's what decency has now come to mean. You are, in other words, speaking, acting, promulgating, and disseminating indecency by promulgating and disseminating a conservative idea or a story about a Democrat that can threaten the Democrats' chances of defeating a Republican. That's the new decency in America. I haven't said it and talked about this in a while, but you'll remember my views, how I've spoken about conservatism is now the effort and the attempt in most of American society is to make conservatives and Republicans um, a lesser human, a lesser being, an untermenschen. And they do that in many ways, the left and the Democrats do, by labeling us, by calling us racists, bigots, or extremists. That's the favorite one. By writing us out of respectable mainstream opinion. That was step one. Step two now is under the protection of decency, not allowing our views to be disseminated as because they are indecent. It's really quite an interesting and big transformation, and I will read you Joy Pullman's recitation of it when we come back. 602-508-0960. Be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Joy Pullman at The Federalist, as I was mentioning, um, identified several examples just affecting The Federalist alone, The Federalist website, the Federalist.com website, um, and and how, how, how social media and big tech went after them this year. I don't know how long The Federalist has been around. I, I don't remember it being on my radar screen much until last year, maybe two. So it's a, it's, basi- it's, a new, it's, a new, it's a new website that not even to this day a lot of people know about. But boy, boy, that, it, it, you know, it wasn't too small for major tech. In June, NBC and Google colluded in an attempt to demonetize The Federalist in retaliation for its coverage of Black Lives Matter rioting. The tech giants demanded they end their commenting section and continues to refuse to allow it back. Google-owned YouTube also continues to shadow-bound Federalist content content and choking engagement. In July, Google claimed it had mistakenly made it impossible for people to find a slew of conservative news sites, ranging from CNS News to the Washington Free Beacon to Breitbart to Red State to Town Hall to PragerU and the Daily Wire. After the election, Instagram slapped a warning label on a post in which President Trump honored Pearl Harbor Day. Instagram, owned by Facebook, put an automatic fact check on Trump's post that claimed Joe Biden won the election, although Trump's post included nothing about the election results. Instagram would later remove that warning after a bitter fight. In October, Twitter suspended a CPB, a U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner, Mark Morgan, for a post celebrating the success of U.S. Southern border and wall, keeping violent criminals from reaching American communities. Well, that's a story that could have had an effect on the election, don't you think? The online publisher banned Morgan, a public official, from communicating the elected president's publicly stated priorities, telling him in an automated message the Post violated hateful conduct policies. You want to know what this tweet said? CPB continues to build new wall every day, every mile, helps stop gang members, murderers, predators, and drugs from entering our country. It's a fact. A wall works. If this is hate speech, all conservatives are criminals. Infamously, Twitter and Facebook tampered with the 2020 election in October by immediately and actively suppressing any knowledge of a federal corruption investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter, related to information found on a Delaware laptop. Let's not forget all the substantiation behind that story, which was far more substantiation than anything about Russian collusion. Yesterday, the computer store owner, by the way, the one who um, turned the laptop over to federal investigators, he sued Twitter for defamation. We'll see how that goes. Twitter's ban was predicated on alleging the laptop contained hacked material, even though Twitter regularly allows the circulation of hacked and hoax information. The laptop owner says he did not hack it. Of course he didn't. It's been substantiated. In October, Twitter Twitter openly admitted it was preemptively 
choking the story on their platform even before deploying fact-checking organizations based in China to explain away what are obviously politically motivated, selectively enforced anti-truth information operations. Um, Of course, Twitter also blocked the New York Post's subsequent reporting on its Hunter Biden laptop scoop because it did several subsequent stories. You know, that's an interesting thing. If you caught wind of the original New York Post story on Hunter Biden and then you caught wind of analysts at CNN saying, well, it looks like a Russian intelligence operation. It looks like it could be a hoax. It's unsubstantiated. You would naturally be inclined to see if the New York Post did any follow-ups. They did. Several. Addressing those very things. Also banned. Also censored. You know, we used to call this the information age. It's the less information age in the hands of these tech media giants. I sure hope something is done. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Hugh and Lewis Hallman will join us in studio at the top of the next hour, as they do every Tuesday. We'll talk uh, COVID, we'll talk politics, we'll talk epistemology, anything you want. Happy to take calls on. Two's really smart gentlemen. Um, let, me, let me now talk to you a little bit about the collusion between Big tech media and 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 legacy media, print and and um, and, t- and table, televised cable. And the reason I'm spending time on this is because, you know, as I said in my monologue, um, what will be, what will history look back on to describe 2020 as the main story? Will it be the issues of race? Will it be COVID? Will it be the election? Um, And what will not be written about and what will not be written about China, perhaps the media, certain social destruction um, as a result of covid uh, as a result of as a result of covid policy. What will not be written about will be in large part self-reflecting when it comes to the issue of the media. Because if they don't allow the story to circulate or make it really hard to find, obviously that's going to affect researchers. That's going to affect historians. I want you to just pause for a moment and think how pregnant a point that is. It's not just that the collusion between big tech and social media on the one hand and legacy media on the other to keep stories from circulating. It's not just that they affected our lives in the year that they did this or in 2020, let's say, this year. That suppression will make it harder for historians, for people in the future to look back and discuss these things, won't it? And the editorials that will get the most prominence for researchers, researchers, whether they're using a LexisNexis-type system or Google history-type system or anything else that social media provides, they'll get not only 
a scrubbed version of what took place this year. They'll get a highly ideological, unidirectionally version. Unidirectional version of what they wanted us to not just know and not know this year, but to a time we will not see. They're broadcasting for a time we will not see. I mean, to put some meat on that bone, you ever look something up or someone up or a story up, or let's say you try and remember a silly example, but let's just take it comes to mind. The Malay speech, Jimmy Carter's Malay speech. We had Tevi Troy on talking about it. He said he never used the word Malays. A few people called and said, yes, he did. No, he really didn't. And you go and Google it, and you get stories from Google. You get stories from the newspapers and the editorials around it from the 1970s and 1980s. So let's say, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years hence now, those stories about what happened this year aren't there. You don't you don't get that kind of history. You can't do that kind of fact checking. It's not just about affecting current elections. That's why I say censorship. It's not just about affecting current policy, current public policy. It's affecting the phrase future history. If you can have a future history, you know what I mean. History that will be written in the future about now. Frank Mealy over at Real Clear Politics put down five of the biggest suppressed stories of 2020. Number five is the mysterious mutating lockdown. And he writes, has anyone ever figured out why it's okay for grocery store workers to remain on the job during an international pandemic while serving the needs of the entire population with no restrictions other than wearing a mask? But it is dangerous for gyms to open or more ludicrous more ludicrously for anyone other than spouses of governors to take their boat for a quick spin around the lake. I'll add, I'll add gyms. It seems like the lockdown can turn into whatever is convenient for politicians. The uneven effects of the lockdown on different states and different sectors resulted in the shift of trillions of dollars of capital in ways that will reshape the economy for generations to come. Yet we're not supposed to talk about it. Three. Trump's vaccine victory, while the president has been painted as anti-science, was his administration's support that led to the fastest turnaround ever from viral discovery to viral vaccine, as such, uh, less than a year. Even as House Democrats are poised to launch investigations into Trump's supposed crimes against humanity for being president during the COVID crisis, lives will be saved as a result of his policies. Just don't expect to read about it in the mainstream media, which spent much of 2020 ridiculing Trump for his prescient predictions that a vaccine would be developed by the end of the year. I remember when he said that Anthony Fauci went on CNN and three times said you cannot have a vaccine this year. Three times. Now he's on TV last week showing the world that he's getting one. Of course, Hunter Biden's laptop was a huge story. Of course it was. The ability to bury the Hunter Biden story throughout the 2020 presidential campaign ranks as one of the greatest victories in the history of propaganda. The son of a former vice president who's running for president has acknowledged history is now actually considered his strong suit. The Senate Homeland Security Committee found extensive evidence that Hunter has made 
hundreds of millions of dollars for the Biden family by selling access to his father. So when the laptop turned up with first-person incriminating evidence, it was obvious that Joe Biden had a lot to answer for, except that the media never made him answer for anything. It preferred to rest on the bizarre assertion from 50 former U.S. intelligence officials Clear evidence of foreign collusion on Hunter's laptop had all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign. This was errant nonsense. Nonsense. Be interesting to see what's written about election fraud. I see there's a fight in the Senate over whether a commission can study fraud in this election. Why would you be against that? Why wouldn't you want to study fraud anywhere? Don't understand that. If you're confident all was good, that would be one thing. If you're not, you'd want to find out. If you're confident all was good, fine. Have the study and reveal that all was good. And satisfy 45% of Americans who don't think all was good. Something needs to help soothe and calm that water. I don't know why that wouldn't be it. It's not a good look for Democrats to say we don't want to study what took place in the election. wouldn't be good for Republicans to say it either. It's not a good look. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hal's in Prescott. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm doing great, Seth. Hey, thanks for taking the call. You betcha. Appreciate it. You bet. So uh, something you said earlier about, uh, you know, how the Democrats are trying to exclude conservatives from society really kind of got the little hamster going in the wheel there. And uh, so it's basically what they're doing is the same thing they did back during Jim Crow and the time of segregation with black people. You bet. You bet. Absolutely right. They used words to they weaponized words to dehumanize people. You bet. Yeah. And you and you do that to to cause people to think that they need to stay away from them. Because if white people and black people just get together and hang out, they're going to realize that they have much more in common than than, uh, they do with their their tech overlords and their Democrat overlords. It's the same method. Dehumanize people. Oh, those are those people over there. We don't talk to them. And what it ultimately is, it's a concession or it's them conceding the fact that if we actually have time to sit down and have conversations with people about what we believe and why we believe it, they will lose. Because if you say to somebody, you know, this is actually socialism, if you look at what they're doing, and they're concentrating power into their hands, and you may win this election because your guys won, but it's a pyrrhic victory because if they make voting not matter, your vote doesn't matter either. And this and on many other issues, if you sit down and talk to people and intermix and intermingle with them and integrate with them, then the Democrats lose. Mm-hmm. This, 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 ultimately, they are afraid of <laughs> us being able <laughs> to uh, have conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Who showed up, Hal? Was that the postman? 
you know what? I think it must be somebody with some dog treats. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your point. I'll let you attend to it because i got to hit the top of the hour break. But this is this is a big issue for me, the psycholinguistics used in politics and how you can dehumanize individuals through epithet or through slander. And that's exactly right. I noticed it. I noticed it during the Obama presidency when everyone from Obama to Hillary as Secretary of State would at the, at once call al-Qaeda not, you know, radical Islamists or radical Islam or, neo or uh, Islamo-fascists or anything like that, called them extremists. And then when they were talking about domestic policy of the Republicans, like Paul Ryan's Social Security bill, they called that extremist. It's a trick. It's a psycholinguistic trick. And we can't be too careful about it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.